So good to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon on what is the first day of Lent. Um, we're very excited to begin our second Table Talk conversation on, on race. And this is hosted by the Beloved Community. My name is Erwin Lopez and I'm a member of the Beloved Community alongside the Bishop's Anti-Racist Task Force. The goal of our webinar is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip and support those who are integrating anti-racism into their ministry and their lives, and because we believe anti-racism to be an act of discipleship, we believe that this is how we love God and we love our neighbor. So today's webinar series will focus on the basics of anti-racism part two. So let's get right to it with our first speaker. Our first speaker is Dr. Jessica Wong. Dr. Jessica Wong is an associate professor of systematic theology at Azusa Pacific University in California. And she works in political and liberation theologies with a focus on race, gender, society, and visual theory. She's an ordained ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church USA and holds degrees in Christian theology and ethics from Duke Divinity School and Duke University. She's also the author of two books. Uh, her first book is called Disordered, The Holy Icon and Racial Myths. And she co-authored a curriculum named Lamenting Racism, A Christian Response to Racial Injustice. And her current research projects considers the role of anger and delight in the struggle against racial injustice in the United States, as well as the racial and social political dynamics of Asian American invisibility and black hypervisibility. So we're very excited to have her um, share with her with us. And so Dr. Jessica Wong, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for the invitation to come speak. Um, so today, as Erwin said, we're going to be talking about some of the basics of anti-racism work. But uh, in order to do that, I'd like to begin with some basics on how the system of racism works so we can think about how we might want to start um, approaching this, you know, this process of dismantling it. So um, I really do believe that at its heart, racism is a problem of the imagination. So we are taught to think about others in a certain way uh, from a very early age, right? We're taught through various mediums, through children's stories, films, television, uh, news stories, anecdotes from families, that type of thing. Um, actually, I have, I have this, I have a niece. Um, she's currently three, but when she was around like one, one and a half, uh, I remember going home and visiting and, and finding a book on her bookshelf. And it was called, I actually have a copy of it here because it was so such a profound experience. It's called uh, Making Faces. It's about, it's a baby book on, on emotions, right? Well, page number one says, look at the happy baby. Can you make a happy face? And it's a white baby, right? And then the very next page, it says, look at the sad baby. Can you make a sad face? And it's a black baby. Right. And while this might seem benign and, you know, I got a lot of pushback from my family saying, well, this, what is that? I mean, it's just a book on emotions. I think that these subtle ways of being formed and shaped that ha having our imagination shaped, right, they actually have profound effect on us in the long run. Um, they start to make you know, these connections between, okay, well, happiness and whiteness, sadness and blackness. Well, why is the black baby so sad? What's wrong with the black baby that makes the baby so sad, right? So this way of thinking about others, right, that we're taught at such an early age, it ends up corresponding with a certain way of imagining how the world works. Like what is the kind of proper order of the world? 
And if that's true, if that means that a big part of the work of racial justice must entail the redemption of our imaginations, right? So how do we go about redeeming our imaginations? I think at the heart of this is the issue of storytelling, the stories we consume and the stories we tell, right? If deformation of our imaginations happens through stories, um, then reformation or redemption of our imaginations also must happen through stories, right? I think that storytelling is all of our responsibility, but insofar as this is a, a, a Christian event, um, I, I wanna speak about what is the church's role in this process of redemption. I think we need to learn to tell the Christian narrative better, more effectively. We need to learn to tell the Christian story in a way that makes that true order, the order of God come alive to us in a manner that captures our imaginations. And if that's right, then we have to ask the question of what does this order look like? What is the order of God? Right? And we Christians, we tell the story of a God who is with and for the other. Um, if we want to get into like the nitty gritty theology of it, we can talk about the eminent trinity and the relationality of the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, who are these three distinct persons, um, other from one another. They're not collapsed into each other and they're not confused. Um, the Father is not the Son, and yet the Father's identity is constituted in relationship with the Son, right? You can't have a father without a child. Um, but yet, even though they are distinct, even though they are other from one another, they are also bound together in love, right? And it is this holy order that not only constitutes who God is, but is also displayed in how God is with creation, right? So God's act of creation, most profoundly in the person of Jesus, right? And this is the order, what I'm arguing here is, is this is the order that God is inviting us into, this way of being with and for the other, um, that is present in the body of Christ, that is present in the spirit's movement, binding and transgressing established boundaries and people groups to create a new community. That this is fundamentally the story that the gospel is telling us. Right? It's this order, this holy order that I really do believe can successfully counter the given racial order with this established logic. And what is amazing about the order of God is that it is an order that is fundamentally driven by this community constituting delight that is found in true encounter with the other. So in this case, with the other that is God, with other people, with the rest of creation, in all such moments of the spirit-led encounter, we are met by this holy delight. And it is this delight that not only has the capacity to transform us, but also has the uncanny ability to draw others toward us and in this way to constitute community. So just think about, for example, what it feels like to witness the delight of a child as she encounters creation, right? It's magnetic, it's contagious, that delight, right? It can fill us up and it draws us in. That's what I'm talking about, right? This fundamental power of the spirit to, and the delight of the spirit in particular to draw us together. Uh, now, the question I'm sure you're asking is why are you even talking about this? Uh, what does this have to do with anti-racism work? Um, I think that the term anti-racism, right, it's become increasingly popular over the last couple of years, and it's intended to communicate something important, right? That we're not only supposed to stay neutral on this issue, uh, but we're supposed to actively work against it. Like we are against racism. However, I'd like to suggest to us that regardless of what language we end up using, what we have to remember is that in the work of racial justice, 
especially as Christians, you know, insofar as we believe that the spirit is a spirit of delight that binds us together, that our work of service in the world is not simply to, to fight against something, but it's also, I think more profoundly to fight for something. And so while I think our work in anti-racism can be fueled by this righteous anger against the injustices of the world, we have to remember that that anger, which can be useful, right? It burns bright and it, and it burns hot, but it cannot be sustained for long, right? We as Christians must be also driven by this kind of transgressive spirit of delight that not only invites us all into a work of justice with a sense of joy, and I would like to suggest even playfulness, but that also builds movements through the contagious quality that attends delight, right? If delight is something that actually draws people in, that that work of justice, right? That that kind of, that, that, that seeking for something, that working towards something, and the delight of the spirit in the, in the midst of all of that, right? That is actually a really powerful fuel for us. And it's also a really powerful way of building coalitions and communities, right? So uh, how are we going to go about this work of justice? Basically, what I'm saying here is that we have to cultivate our Christian imagination. We have to learn to tell our story better, more persuasively. We have to learn to describe the order of God in a way that captivates imaginations. And by that, I mean, we have to be guided by the spirit of God that transgresses the established boundaries of our given order, of our given communities, that draws others into that work uh, of, through the delight right, found in the holy encounter with God, with one another, and with the rest of creation. Right? It's got to be delight that that drives us. And I think the truth is that a lot of discourse around racial justice work, that's missing, right? Because we are angry and I get why we're angry. It makes sense. Um, but I don't think that anger is enough to bring us all the way through where we want to go. I know I only have 10 minutes, so I don't want to take up too much time. Um, but yeah, I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Wong, for that great reminder and I know as somebody who's doing my best to engage in the work of anti-racism you know it can often feel heavy sad discouraging you know and and you're right you know that fire cannot be sustained for long and thank you for that reminder to to find joy somehow in the midst of it all so that we can invite others into that delight that you talk about thank you for that reminder I appreciate it if you guys have any questions for any of the panelists, please feel free to put them in the, in the chat um, so we can continue the conversation. Um, next, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Reverend David Williamson. Uh, Reverend David Williamson is an ordained elder here in the Florida United Methodist Church. Y'all may know him. He's, he's um, a dear friend of mine and uh, one of my mentors and, and somebody I, I look up to. And he's also the co-pastor of Grace United Methodist Church in St. Augustine, Florida. And he's one of the leaders of the public policy and witness team of the Bishop's Anti-Racism Task Force. And I wanted to invite him to speak because he has a great perspective and he's very passionate about the work of anti-racism. So Pastor David, the floor is yours. Thanks, Erwin. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Wong, uh, for the really powerful reminder um, of the delight of God in this work of doing justice. Um, it made me think about um, 
the reality of that heaviness of the work and and honestly made me think about one of the current pieces of legislation that is coming through the Florida legislature right legislature right now that actually makes it illegal to address issues of exclusion in general but racism in particular if they make people uncomfortable you know and psychologically um uncomfortable. I can't think of all the language of the bill, but it's basically permission to shut down the conversation with employers and with um, educational institutions, public schools, if it makes me uncomfortable to talk about this, this stuff. And um, the, the, the sadness that I have around that and the anger that I have around that policy is that it undermines um, the great need that um, I have and that I think we have as human beings uh, to navigate the, the realities of our sad, mad, and scare uh, in order to move toward um, the delight, the, the joy, the peace, and the power that God um, also longs for us to have. It's, it's both and, right? And, and so um, it's just, it just maddening to me that uh, we, would, we would create a policy that gives permission to um, shut down the dialogue if it makes us uncomfortable. And so this particular policy, if you all are interested in learning about it, is um, House Bill 7. It's also got a counterpart in the Senate called SB 148. Um, and I can um, put a link to the website on the Florida Conference website that you can learn more about this policy. We had a, um, a webinar where um, a representative from the League of Women Voters came and told us about the, the specifics of this policy and some of its potential impact. I'm also gonna share with you a letter that I wrote as just a, an example of how uh, this policy will do our racism for us if we simply ignore it. Um, and uh, again, just an example of the way in which um, racism functions at this policy level. So that's second link there is, is my example letter. Um, one, you know, it's kind of interesting that the bishop asked me to co-lead with two other colleagues, Heather Pancoast and Reverend Warner Jordan, a, a, a um, public policy and witness anti-racism team. I thought, Bishop, um, that's not my wheelhouse. I mean, I, I have so much learning to do in that area. And he, he said, I know. And you'll be surrounded by people who have strength that you don't have. And so I was really grateful that he had that confidence to ask me uh, to join this team. And I've been learning so much, um, mainly because as a white male uh, person, you know, identifying with those group identities, I, I, I navigate the world in, in ways that keep me um, blind or unconscious to the realities of, of how racism functions at an institutional and policy level. And so it's really been important for me to to think about how racism not only functions in my in my person, in my attitudes, my thinking, and my my you know maybe uh, feelings uh, toward people who uh, who are different from me, 
Um, they also, and in my interpersonal behaviors toward others, it also functions at a policy level, uh, which again, if I, if I ignore that, um, I, I like to say it, it, can, it can do my hatred for me. It can do my racism for me. And uh, it's important for me to learn about this, to make contact with understanding how these policies have functioned historically and even into today. Now, this, this policy in the, in the Florida House and Senate right now has no overt racist language in it. In fact, it's titled On Individual Freedom. And I think to myself, who's not going to vote for a bill called On Individual Freedom? And the reality is, as you read this bill, it's, it's individual freedom for mainly white people to shut down the conversation when it makes them uncomfortable. Now, it doesn't say that in explicit language, but that's the impact of the bill. It's going to allow employees to sue their employer for requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion training that might make them uncomfortable. And I chuckled at that because back in 2012 and 13, I was with many of you clergy in the Florida Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church being required by my bishop at the time to take diversity, equity, and inclusion training. That indeed made me uncomfortable, right? I went with this arms folded stance and closed stance and um, not really open. And it took going to the first day to realize, wow, this isn't about attack, shame, or blame for white people in a, in a, a way to um, silence my voice. This is a way of awakening and seeing things I hadn't seen before so that we can collaboratively work for healing in diverse teams. So it's super powerful for me to, to go through that experience and had, it, had this bill been on the books as law back then, it would have given permission for any one of us that felt uncomfortable with the training to literally sue our bishop, to bring a lawsuit against our bishop. How sad is that, right? So I would encourage you to read more about this bill and to speak up to your legislators. You can find out who they are and write to them uh, as many have already done. It's really important work. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, maybe I should just stop there because I think I've talked too long. So I'm gonna pause there and then I'll just leave space for questions that, as people might have them. So thanks everyone. Great, thank you so much, uh, Pastor David. And I hope that you hear from Dr. Wong and from David, the many faces of anti-racism, the many ways that we can actively um, be anti-racist. Um, you've heard examples of storytelling, We've heard examples of challenging systems. And, and what David specializes in is, is in the nitty gritty. I call it the nitty gritty because he's learning about laws and, and bills that are racist that are being passed right under our nose without us even knowing about it. And some of our callings is to get involved in that work, to write letters, to, to, to make sure these laws are not being passed. And if you want to find out how you can get involved with that, David is, that's where his focus is. And you can reach out to him and he has a team that is actively trying to do their best to make sure these racism laws are not being passed. So thank you so much, David and, and Dr. Wong for reminding us that anti-racism has many different shapes and, and sizes. Um, and so, and now our, our final speaker is Pastor Paul Lawson. Um, he is an ordained elder in the Florida United Methodist Church, serving in Dundee, Florida. That's in the central Florida area. And a very humble man. He's also a PhD, um, which he received at the University of Chicago. 
with a focus on curriculum instruction and the philosophy of education. He comes with over 25 years of experience in higher education. And he's also a native born Jamaican with roots in Pentecostal, Wesleyan and liberation theology, church traditions. And I sat under his leadership for a very short time and uh, I learned so much under him and I'm so thankful for his friendship and I'm so thankful that he's gonna be speaking today. So um, Pastor Paul, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, David, and uh, appreciated the the invitation to come and um, have this conversation, brief though it might be. <laughs> um, Dr. Wong, I was I was struck by your by your emphasis on um, <clears throat> storytelling, because obviously uh, one of the things I am thinking through is the extent to which we have somehow neglected somewhat the the slave narratives that are that are so uh rich with with uh thoughts and 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 feelings about about anti-racism i mean look if there is going to be a, a context or a space for anti-racism it would have been on the plantations and so what I did and what I've been doing recently is to go back to those narratives to see what I could pull from uh, from from what um, uh, folks were saying and what they wrote about uh, concerning their experiences. A brief a brief background. I I'm Jamaican and Jamaica has a, a record of, in fact, a rather impressive record. Of, of of slave revolts um, over its maybe 180 years as a slave society. Um, it has had at least one major slave revolt every decade. And we're talking about major, uh, not counting the minor smirk, um, you know, fights and battles here and there. And I and I thought to myself that this this is this is where the work of anti-racism should be. You know, it should be at, at least recognizing the experiences of those who have gone through this and learning from the slaves through the richness of their narratives, the richness of their stories. I therefore ask you then to work with me with this definition because it's it's basic, It's it's not deeply philosophical, but I think it hits the point. When I talk about resistance, I'm talking about this inherent ability, inherent ability to, to um, resist harmful influences. Notice the word also organism, because organism means that uh, this, this entity is experiencing uh, what we're dealing with. And so what I'm asking us to do today is to think in terms of how slaves went through this racist system on the plantation and even beyond. And how did they, you know, how did they accomplish what they accomplished? How, how did they work through that? And could they, in fact, teach us a few things? As an educator, I'd like to think that I try to learn from from whatever experiences that are out there. And I and I would suggest to us that we take a, a, a deeper look, a more careful look at these narratives that were uh, recorded and we'll, we'll put up some, 
resources here in a little bit. But the the idea of resistance is obviously many, many faceted, right? So you can resist aggressively, you can resist defensively, you can resist in a trans transformative way, you can resist in a limited way. And you know, the results might not be what you want the results to be, but resistance tend to go, you know, run the spectrum, right? Right. And I think we understand that. And oftentimes I know I get frustrated when it becomes a matter of talking through something instead of doing something. So, so my concern is our tendency to take the work of anti-racism um, as becoming primarily an academic endeavor. It, 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 really, it really messes with me. It messes with my sens sensitivity in terms of how we do anti-racism work sometimes. And I'm frustrated. A few of you have already uh, <laughs> engaged me in these conversations where, for the life of me, I don't know why we tend to depend on books and, and webinars like these, frankly, to get us into the mood of figuring out what anti-racism is. Now, please, I'm not anti-intellectual. What I am, though, is anti-waste of time, right? In, in terms of, and I think I think David mentioned this briefly, wasting, uh, well, appeasing, right? Appeasing the sens sensitivities of those who simply refuse to yield for fear of losing power. And I see a lot of that going on in our work in our anti-racism work. We're so, we're so into making sure that people feel comfortable. So let's step back and let's go back to these slave narratives because this was not what they were about. They were not about making people feel comfortable. After all, the situation was dire and for many of them, it was a question of life and death. And so here's, here's where we need to be. Learn by doing, learn by experiencing. We should reflect the lived experiences of those who were or are now victims of racism. At least be prepared to actively listen to their story. I say actively, which means that we, we get involved, right? We get involved in what they're talking about and be more than sympathetic. We're empathetic. We start walking a mile or two in their shoes. I think we talk too much. I think we're too academic a lot of times. And so I think we need to enter into the experiences of the slaves and no better way to do that than to participate in what they're doing and in what they went through. So I'm kind of Xing out the ethic perspective, the outsider perspective, the, the most comfortable perspective, like sitting on this webinar, talking about this is the most comfortable place to be right? No engagement, no skin in the game. We just sit, we talk academically about stuff, which is fine. Don't get me wrong. It's fine. But I think what the slave narratives teach us is that these folks were engaged in their own um, welfare, in their own well-being. And I think we need to move from the outsider perspective to the insider perspective, where we participate in what they're going through. So here are some themes I hope, um, I'm, you know, I'd like to read two of these narratives briefly. Um, I had three or four, but time is against us. 
But here's some themes we need to uh, anticipate. As you read, go read them. Um, and as, as I read a couple of these, the ethical theme, in other words, you resist out of duty. You don't resist uh, calculating what the outcome is going to be. You resist out of duty. And that was their sense of ethics, right? It's like uh, what they call a deontological approach to, uh, you know, to ethics. You, you do it because it's the right thing to do. You do it because it's the categorical imperative, right? This is what I got to do. I have to resist. Secondly, there's the communal sense. The themes running through these narratives is solidarity. And I think um, Dr. Wong mentioned that in, in terms of community, in terms of, um, and I was taking notes here, you know, that um, with and for the others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You gotta be a part of that. You gotta be in solidarity with them and they are already in solidarity with each other. How dare us then try to sit on the sideline and say we're, in, you know, we're into anti-racism work and then, you know, again, you know, there's no sacrifice. There's no skin in the game. We just talk, 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 talk. Let me read a couple of these narratives and then close this. Um, pardon the fine print, but I wanted to make sure that I, I have you read with me or read along with me. So this is uh, Fanny Berry, enslaved in Virginia. I'm gonna do my best slave, slave uh, talk here, right? I was one slave that the poor white man had his match. See, Missou? These here old white men said, what I can't do by fair means, I'll do by foul. One tried to throw me, but he couldn't. We tussled and knocked over chairs. And when I got a grip, I scratched his face all to pieces. And there was no more bothering Fanny from him. But oh, honey, some slaves would uh, beat up so when they resisted. And sometimes if you uh, belled, the overseer would kill you. Us colored women had to go through a plenty, I tell you. Notice the, notice the violence, notice the resistance. Um, I put there in, in, in blue highlights self-defense, but that's, a, that's just to appease some of you who might think that this violence is, is uncalled for. You're being put upon. You're being abused. You're be you're you're enslaved, and you know you're being uh, um, uh, victimized. What is your what is your course of action? And so the challenge for us is to ask ourselves: Would we, even as Christians, get to that place where we believe force might be necessary? Yeah, I said it. Force might be necessary. All right. So we're learning. We're trying to learn. And if there's a Christian answer to this, maybe at some other point we can have that conversation. The second narrative um, uh, from Lou Smith, enslaved in Mississippi. Now, this one is, is, is tragic, but, but let's read. Uh, my mother told me that he, the master, owned a woman who was the mother of several children. And when her babies would get about a year or two of age, he'd sell them and it would break her heart. She never got to keep them. When her fourth baby was born and was about two months old, she just studied all the time about how uh, she would have to give it up. And one day she said, I just decided, I'm not going to let old master sell this baby. He just ain't going to do it. And she got up and gave it something out of a bottle 
and pretty soon it was dead. Slave narratives tend to be very uh, <laughs> pointed, right? Uh, you know, they cut through some of our uh, modern kind of, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies and, and they get uh, to the heart of the problem. Uh, a kind of euthanasia here, a kind of mercy killing, which is a part of that resistance, right? Now, you know, we can we can talk about this some other time as to the ethics of it or whatever, but put yourselves in their shoes, live in their lives, in their skins, and ask yourself if you would have the heart to make that kind of decision to have your baby killed or apparently poisoned instead of going through slavery a type of resistance, again, that we need to respect, I believe, and we need to recognize as beyond, obviously, what we would do. So that's where I'm going to end this. Um, again, slave narratives give us a nice view of kind of some of the other ways we can go about uh, taking care of anti-racism and the work that we do. But we have to, at the most basic level, we have to resist. We have to resist. Talking is not enough. And maybe for some people, talking is resistance. I don't know. But let's, let's continue working. And I appreciate the work of all of you who are uh, in this and doing the best darn job you can. Thank you, Brother Irwin. Thank you so much, Pastor Paul, for your insight. And I do want to just remind everybody that the goal of these webinars is exactly what Pastor Paul and everybody's been, been talking about today. While they are to, the goal is to bring awareness, the goal is that it would spark action. It would spark action in your church, in your life, in your conversations, and in everything that you do. And so thank you so much for that reminder. For Dr. Jessica Wong. You mentioned this in the group chat. Would you like to expand on that a little bit more here? Yeah, I mean, so Mary's question was about um, like more practical kind of how, how do we actually bring the work of joy and delight into um, our social justice work? Um, and, and on a more practical end, I think that first of all, we need to really create opportunities to celebrate our connections in our community um, you know, a lot of times when we gather together, we're all about the business of organizing ourselves toward action. I think that's really important. Um, you know, we, uh, like uh, Reverend Lawson said, right, we shouldn't just be talking, we should be doing. Um, and that's, and that, that's so essential. Um, but I think, yeah, taking the time to really celebrate uh, not only the connections we have, uh, but also the way in which the work draws together people who at times are unexpected. You know, we talk about the body of Christ being constituted by all these diverse peoples, right? And oftentimes our churches don't reflect that because our churches tend to be very homogeneous. Um, but I think the work of justice, if we're doing it well, um, is not does not separate us along the lines of race, but provides us a glimpse into that kingdom of reality that is this kind of connection beyond this, this 
false social construct that is right that is race right i'm not saying that cultural kind of particularity isn't important but i'm saying that there are also things that can bind us together and i think the work of justice is one of those things um yeah and and i also think you know if we're doing this well that we're we we cease and we're really focusing on the work of delight and the spirits movement in that that we we stop being as fearful about distinguishing who is in and who is out right who who is properly articulating this and who we don't have time for because they're not i, I think our our, our po the posture of our heart changes um and it becomes the spirit actually allows us to be connected with people um in in a way that um that overcomes i think what is a fundamental shortcoming uh often in a lot of these justice organizations that do tend to be so, because we are vulnerable right they're like those who are vulnerable fear, uh, they want to protect themselves. And I totally understand that. But I think in doing so, we forget or we lose sight of the true call of the gospel, which did not promise us that we would not be vulnerable, right? But calls us to this profound connection with one another. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. And I believe there's just maybe one final question for David. And the question is, what will the UMC do if these bills are passed? That is a great question, and it would be so powerful if we would continually stay in relationship with our legislators, letting them know that we see what they're doing. Um, you know, the work uh, of justice is not a one letter thing. It is a long term lifetime process and generational process. So staying in relationship with your elected officials, letting them know that you see what they're doing and raising your voice in an ongoing way, uh, thanking them for when they do take bold steps in directions that lead to uh, creating more inclusive environments uh, and justice is also important. So it shouldn't be just a, we're always criticizing what you're doing. It's also about how can we say thank you for what you are doing. So I think both of those things, the ongoing work, letting folks know that we see what they're doing and then uh, encouraging them when they do take positive steps. Well, thank you so much to everybody who participated in today's webinar. Um, and we hope that you continue to fight the good fight. And I will say that at the end of today's webinar, I do feel a sense of delight, a sense of joy to be participating in this work with such wonderful people. So thank you so much and may the Lord be with you. Also with you.